Hi, my name is Lila Turner and you are listening to the Becoming Relationship Ready podcast series. Here we'll be discussing the twists, the turns, the ups and downs and the wins and fails of finding love and connection. Each week, I will have a different guest share their experience and relationship stories. I'll want to know what are their stumbling blocks, what have their blind spots been, what have their relationship patterns been that felt unbreakable. And I'll also want to know what are their relationship hacks, what have they discovered about themselves and relationships that has been a game changer for them. So welcome, Christine Heath. Do you prefer being called Chris or Christine? It doesn't matter. Either one, I'm good. Aloha, everyone. Hi, thank you so much for coming. So um, you are based in Hawaii. So jealous about that. These are the letters you have after your name. It's all of the alphabet. You have an MS, you have an LMFT, you have an MAC, you have a CSAC. And then you have a 40 years. So there's like quite a lot going on in there, right? That's pretty dense. I'm already lost. You have over 40 years experience providing three principles-based therapy. You're a licensed marriage and family therapist, a master addictions counselor. In Hawaii, you're certified as a substance abuse counselor. You're an AAMFT approved supervisor. This is really detailed. I know there's health and there's like a lot of goodness in there, but I don't know what any of it means. And you created training programs for marriage and family therapy, graduate students, professionals who are working towards a license. That's a lot. Like, I kind of feel like I need to take like a digestion tea just to have got through that. But I'm, I'm somewhat proud that I managed to say it. Also, you're a um, speaker, author, creator of Psychology Has It Backwards with Judith Sedgman. So uh, that's a fantastic podcast series if you get a chance to listen to it. If you're interested in the mind, therapy and health and wellness, that will be something that would tick a box for you. So I'd definitely check it out if you get a chance. And um, I have got to know you over the last year because we've been working on some projects together. But actually, before that, I have commissioned you to do some work for us around Relationship Ready because I would discover that you have some great stories yourself about love relationships and finding somebody. Chris, there's so many things I want to ask you, but I want to start with you at 16 or around the time when you first started dating. What was dating like for you when you were a teenager? The conundrum I put myself in is if I wasn't lovable and someone loved me, then what was wrong with them that they loved me? Mark Twain said he would never become a member of a club that would have him as a member. I would never accept a boyfriend that liked me because I was unlovable. So he was obviously not of any good quality if he liked me. When I went to college, I had my first real kind of boyfriend there. And he got really stressed out about something and had to move back to a little town in Minnesota and left. And that was the, the last I really saw him. He got married and lives in Iowa now. After that, I really didn't have like a long-term relationship until I was like 26. And that was kind of on and off. But I was definitely looking for love in all the wrong places. So I was looking for someone to love me so I could feel better. And I kept finding men that had their own issues about being loving. I could be unloved and uh, left and it just kept the story in my life going. So interesting. In a way, you found your perfect match, <laughs> forgiven the story you were telling yourself. Yeah, I kept finding people that matched what I thought, you see. I thought I was unlovable, so I would put up with things in relationships that I certainly wouldn't put up with now. But like I remember one guy that I dated for a while brought me two dozen long-stemmed roses, and it made me feel like, oh, my God, he was so repulsive that he would do that. It was really weird. But what I got out of that in those days was that, you know, like I grew up in the 50s when being married and having somebody validate you as a wife was 
ingrained in all of us. It was, that was kind of like how to find happiness was to have the right relationship with a man. When the feminist movement happened, I became involved with that early on. And I was quite adamant and agitated. And I could really see that, you know, in my life anyway, it looked like men were doing this to women. And that didn't help anything, right? Because then I became quite strident and I would call men on their bad behavior frequently. So I was pretty much always looking up, like, like some people are spiritual searchers. They're like looking for the next book to read or the next guru to go to. I was like looking for the next man that was going to make me feel better. Parallel to that story, given what I know about you, you set up a number of practices, you know, therapy practices, more than one, right? And ran them successfully in different parts of the States, including the mainland in America and also Hawaii. Mm-hmm. When you were like 16 and choosing unhelpful choices of boyfriend, where was your head at about a career? What did you think you wanted to be? Well, I wanted to be a lawyer. From the sixth grade, I wanted to be a lawyer until I graduated college. And then I had to take the LSAT and I was too afraid that I wouldn't pass it. So I didn't take it because I thought if I never tried, I wouldn't be disappointed that I didn't make it. And what's the LSAT like, the bar? It's like the um, entrance exam for law school. So you studied, had all the information. You probably knew it. You're very diligent, but you just didn't take the exam. I was so freaked out. I thought I was really stupid. And so I didn't think I was smart enough to take the LSAT to get in. And I didn't want to be like a failure. So I just didn't take it. I mean, it's really good because had I become a lawyer, I'd been really nuts because I was very busy minded and into the details already. It was exactly the right thing for me to do, but I always wanted to be a lawyer. What was it about lawyer that drew you? Like, what was it a romantic idea? You know, there's a part of me that wanted to champion the rights of the underdog. And so I wanted to be a defense lawyer. And then in college, part of my degree was an interdepartmental degree. And I studied criminal justice studies and women's studies. So I was looking at how women kind of got involved with the justice system kind of through their relationships with men and prostitution or financial schemes that men would kind of get them involved with and then they'd end up in prison. It was kind of like I wanted to defend those that were unjustly charged. And I was just really easily influenced by media at the time because that was my life, really. I just grew up watching movies and watching television shows. And for some reason, I was just drawn to that. And when I grew up, my school counselor told me, he said, Chris, why don't you be a teacher? Why would you want to be a lawyer? I was like, because I want to be a lawyer, you know, because that's how weird it was that people would even women would even think about going into law school. But I think the insecurity I had because there were no models of other women that did that, there was nothing to kind of see that beyond my own insecure thinking about it. So I just freaked myself out about it. Good job. Meaning it worked out, I guess. (laughs) It worked out great. Had I not done that, I wouldn't have ever learned the principles and I would be still a a hot mess, I'm quite sure. And what happened next? What was in your mind? What were you thinking? Well, I had no idea what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to get a job, a professional job. The only job I could find was being a cocktail waitress at a Holiday Inn by the state capitol. And this man kept coming in for lunch and, and after work. And I mean, now I know he's probably alcoholic, but at the time, I didn't know that. And he was telling me about this job and did I want to work in human services? He said, well, I've got this job setting up group homes for people who are coming out of institutions. So at that time, people were warehoused in institutions. And so people that had developmental disabilities or intellectual disabilities that they would just put away and not seen and not heard. And really nothing was done with them to have them experience life. So they made a law that all these state hospitals had to be closed. And so they set up these group homes for people in the community. So there was a transition. And so I got hired to do this job of developing these group homes in the community, which I had no idea how to do. But nonetheless, I did that and helped change some of the federal regulations regarding those group homes. And it was a really good experience. But at that time, then I started to really realize that I was depressed. And so I got into therapy from a boyfriend, actually. A boyfriend told me, Chris, I think you need to be in therapy. I was like, I do not. And then about a year later, I was like, okay, what was the name of that therapist you said I should go to? 
So I ended up going into therapy and I got put into a women's group and the women's group, I was just really good at it. I was good at seeing what people were doing and why they were doing it and kind of analyzing their past. And there was a woman there that was an incest victim and she came forward, you know, she was kind of suing her father and kind of being very verbal about it, which at that time, nobody talked about it. Nobody did anything about it. It was like really very taboo. So she asked me if I would be willing to do an adolescent group with adolescent incest victims. And I said, yeah, I'll try it. And so I started doing that. And then I was pretty good at that. And I became like an expert in working with sexual trauma with women and was in graduate school at the time getting my degree in special education. So I switched my degree in the middle of my graduate program to add on counseling to it. So it's special ed and counseling and decided that I wanted to be a therapist as a hobby. I didn't want to be a therapist full-time because I wanted to be a businesswoman. I like that. I like being involved with state government and developing programs and And I was working in the addiction program by that time, setting up outpatient programs for people. So at one time I was in graduate school, working full-time for the state, and I had a part-time private practice working with incest victims that was the equivalent of many people's full-time practice. By that time, I was so driven. I was going so hard that I didn't really have time for a relationship. So God knows why I couldn't find a man during that time, because I was working all the time. And then when I take time off to go out, I would go looking for men in, in bars and lo and behold, I'd find men that had problems with drinking. And so how kind of, old were you at this point? Like, are you in your, you know, mid thirties, late twenties? I, I-, oh, I set up my first clinic when I was 27 with a master's degree. So that was like the next year. This is all before I learned the principles. And that was the year that I actually was in a relationship on and off that we talked about getting married. I was engaged to him at one time, but I was working a lot and I really didn't ever slow down to connect with anybody. I mean, I was quite captivated when you said you just got put in these groups and you felt very natural. And if it was taboo, not getting freaked out or frightened or feeling worried you're going to do something wrong. Do you think there's any, did you, what did you see in the people you worked with? What did you, was there something intuitive you saw about them? In retrospect, I mean, I kind of think that I wanted to be hopeful for myself, but I saw that there was something in people that they could survive whatever happened to them. Unfortunately, I was trained that you should take them back into what happened in order to get them out of it. But I could see that they didn't have to be impacted by what by the trauma for the rest of their life. And I wanted to relieve the suffering of people. I didn't want these women to be living in this hell. That's a chunky, chunky statement just to absorb. What made you slow down? Like you were essentially holding three full-time type of jobs and you were in a relationship, didn't really work. You didn't have time for them. I got my master's degree, right? So I got out of school. And then as it happened, I got hired by a a private company to work in addiction. So I had that job and then my part-time private practice, but just life happened. You know, it's like they made a law that said that you could have your own private clinics and you had to do it a certain way, but I was the only person that had administrative experience. So I became the kind of coordinator of the people in private practice that worked together. And we set up the first clinic was called Park Place Clinic. And then after that... Um, Joe Bailey, who's another uh, therapist that's a principal-based therapist, had his office in the same building that I was in. But we didn't like each other because he was a male and I was a not hot on males as a therapist. So we didn't really like each other. But he came back from this conference that he went to in Florida where he met his wife. And so we happened to go out to lunch together by accident. He was just there and he said, hey, you want to have lunch with me? And I said, oh, yeah, I got time. So we went and had lunch together. It's the only time we've ever talked in our whole life. And he's telling me about this guy and this new stuff. But mainly I was interested in the fact that he met his wife there. And so I was always like interested in, because I'm like pushing 30 now. And I really wanted to get married if I was going to have children. I was needing to 
put the pressure on a little bit. So that's really why I was interested because he'd met his wife this way and he was clearly enamored with her. And so he brought up Dr. Roger Mills to do this conference. And I thought I wanted to talk to him about it, first of all, because my one of my best friends, my roommate actually was in one of his groups and it was irritating me that he wasn't dealing with his shit. And he wasn't dealing with all the trauma he had gone through and all the things that had happened. And so I kind of went down to confront him on it, really, and tell him he was doing a bad job in therapy with my friend. And he starts telling me about this new stuff. And I'm, you know, the queen of argumentation and I'm not listening. And But he said, look, if you want to know what it is, go to the conference. He'd had it with me. And I was like, okay. So I went up to my office and I sat down and I thought, well, you know, you might meet somebody at psychology conference. It'd be a better place to look than where you've been looking. It's like, yeah, okay. So I uh, signed up and I signed up for both days because I thought if I met somebody the first day and I wasn't already signed up for the optional day, that it would look too obvious that I was trying to go because I'd met this person. So I signed up for both days. And as it turns out, I was the first person to sign up for both days. So I went to this training and I always say I was always looking for love in all the wrong places. And I went to this training and I found love, but it wasn't in a man. It was in myself. And that was kind of when things started to turn around for me. And tell me, you've said before to me something along the lines of your first insight being you had an insight around thought. Oh, yeah. You know, it was interesting because honestly, my like striving for a man was still alive at this because as he was talking in the morning, I was being argumentative as a male psychologist. I really wasn't interested. So I'd argue with him, kind of ask argumentation questions. And in the afternoon, we broke for lunch and we were all in my clinic. We were all, we, what we do is good and we help people too and blah, blah, blah. We got up and it was one of those weird moments, you know, like on TV where the main character keeps walking and everybody else has stopped in time. Well, that happened. It was like, weird. And I turned around again and it worked out that Roger Mills and I hit the door at the same time. And he said to me, he said, I didn't answer your questions very well, did I? And I said, no, as a matter of fact, you didn't. But honestly, I couldn't understand his answer, but I just lied. And so he started talking to me. And by this time I knew he was single, right? So I'm thinking dinner. Okay. And so I just listened to him and he's talking. He's got such a nice feeling. It was like talking to somebody with melted butter. You know, it was just like so smooth. And, and then we went back in the afternoon. So I was feeling a little bit better. I thought, well, you know, if I get dinner with him, I better be able to converse with him. I better pay attention to what he's talking about here. So I started to listen. Then in the afternoon, he said, be positive. Like in those days, the idea of being positive was like, doing bad therapy. And so that was huge for me to even think that. I, I can do positive. I thought, yeah, I can do that. And then I talked to this doctor in the break. And at the time I thought, if you were a doctor, you were like one step down from God. You'd be very smart and you wouldn't be bamboozled by any goofy things. So I went up to him. I said, well, what do you think about this? He said, well, it makes good common sense to me. It was like, oh, well, maybe I should listen. So I went back in the afternoon and he put up a, a drawing and all of a sudden my world shifted. You know, like people, when they're going to die, their life flashes before their eyes. Well, what flashed in front of my eyes was all the moments in my life I had interpreted wrong and that it wasn't about the world doing it to me. It was about my thinking about the world. And I had this shift that was so great. And it was especially around relationships. It was like, I started laughing. I thought, oh my God, this is me thinking this. I'm thinking this. I'm thinking I'm not lovable. I'm thinking that people don't love me. It was just absolutely hilarious to me. And so I started to basically laugh for the next three days because I thought, gosh, I've been spent, I spent $25,000 and seven years in therapy analyzing my own thinking, analyzing what I thought and thinking I was telling stories about the world. So that shift happened. And of course I didn't date him at that point, but he became my teacher. And, uh, 
I remember that night we had dinner with Joe and Michael because I was the only one in the whole group that actually heard him. And I, we were having dinner and all of a sudden I thought, oh, I don't need to be in therapy. There's nothing wrong with me. Oh my God. It felt like huge waves of joy coming through me, a surprise, awakening. And I just felt so different because I wasn't so insecure. And I wasn't looking outside of myself for my own validation. Chris, tell me about the love part. You said you discovered love in yourself. Is that what you're pointing to? Can you say anything more about that? At the time, I really wouldn't call it. I found love in myself. What I found was I really saw that I wasn't my thoughts, that I was a part of this incredible energy. It's like I, I just saw that I was that spiritual essence of life, really. I don't know how to say that without sounding cheesy, but it's, it was just like before I didn't see that. And I would get caught up in my thoughts. And my thoughts, I didn't even see that I was thinking, really. I didn't see that my thinking had anything to do with me. And so when I saw that I was thinking and that my thinking was creating the distortion in my reality, and that's what was making me feel so depressed, that I was not that. I mean, it's kind of like I saw that I was a spirit, spiritual essence. I don't know how to say that, but it's like I clicked in, you know, like when you working on putting a cover on a plastic jar and you get it to click in and it, it seals it. It was all of a sudden I clicked in. It was like, oh, I've been looking at everything backwards. And then that feeling, this beautiful feeling just came through me. I felt like the way I described it is it felt like I was having all kinds of flower petals coming out of me. It was just this incredible, like being on a roller coaster almost of just this rolling, beautiful feelings coming in and happiness. And, and now, mind you, I, I mean, I, I hadn't smiled in so long that I started smiling and my cheeks started hurting because the muscles hadn't gone up for so long. That's how serious I was. So it was like the floodgates opened. And like, the, like, like my thoughts had created a dam. And all of a sudden, this pure, beautiful water just came pouring through me. I know when I started to see I was more than my stories, the most mundane things felt totally different, like making a cup of tea or having to do something in the kitchen or, you know, like mundane things turned on its head. Yeah. Well, you notice things. Like you notice things. You notice yourself. You notice your thinking. Things that you were totally blind to all happening, but so unaware I was of that. It was in December in Minnesota, which is not my favorite time of year there. And all I could see was how beautiful the snow was glistening and how beautiful the blue sky was and how funny people were. I just got my sense of humor back that I hadn't had in so long. I just started laughing about everything. And I'd laugh because I'd be different with people and they'd react. And then I could see that they were talking to a different person. You know, I've freaked people out. You know, I was a kind of a big shot in the therapeutic community in Minneapolis. I mean, I was really well known for the work I did with family violence issues. Very few people did that. And when I changed, man, it was like a tsunami went through the community. People called me up and said, we heard you flipped out. And, you know, what's what are you doing that's so different? We heard that you changed. It was like people got so insecure because I was happy. And they had never seen a human being change that much, really. I think that's what it was. All of them were therapists. Most of my friends were therapists. And they just hadn't seen anybody in their life change as much as I changed. And I did nothing to do it. I just went to this conference. And they were all at the conference. So it was like, what did she hear that I didn't hear? So lovely. And what I'm really curious, like your first client after that insight, what happened? Well, the first client that I had, after the first day was a woman that was going to stop therapy with me because she didn't think she was getting better. And I had told her she had to come in and have one last session with me to terminate. And we'd talk about it. 
And of course, in those days, I would talk people back into staying because they were sick and their mind was tricking them that they need to be out of therapy and blah, blah, blah. And therapy was hard and you had to suffer a lot and to get rid of all the suffering you already had. So I said to her, well, you can stop therapy with with me if you want to, but this is what I'm going to do. And then I just started to talk to her about what I had just seen. And she looked at me, she said, well, if you're going to do that, I'll stay. I was like, oh, wow, that was the easiest time I ever had getting somebody to stay in therapy. You know, I had like six groups. I had like, I was seeing like 65 clients a week. I thought, okay, how am I going to do this? I'm a different person. And literally you can see the case notes at the time went from how I was to like, it was a different therapist that came in and people, the women started having hope and they started to not talk about how their mothers were mean to them and how their relationships with men were so dysfunctional and they started having hope and they started to feel better and they started to have confidence. So the first groups I had to present this, right? I had no idea what I was talking about because I just went to one day training is like, I had this great feeling and that was it. I had no other kind of words. And I said, look, you guys, this is what I just saw. This is what I see for myself. This is what I'm going to do. This is the best in the business. This is what I'm going to do. And They were like struck by the feeling I was in and they thought whatever I was drinking, they wanted to drink it too, because they could see how much better I was. And uh, they would say things like, this has been the missing piece for us. This is what's been missing. That year, they all went through a huge metamorphosis. I went to seven weddings that year. I had never gone to a client's wedding before that. But seven women got married that were in my groups and people stayed married. And it was like a totally different job. It was like a totally different therapist for them. After that weekend, each day was a huge learning thing. Like, wow. I remember Joe and I would call each other like, and then this happened and then that happened and then this happened. And we're like, oh, my God, what about this? And -and so-and-so said that. We were like uh, amazed and insecure at the same time because we were so walking into the unknown and we had no idea what we were doing, but we were sure sure having fun. It's like you were learning on the job of mind, the profound, vast part of us, the stuff that gives us really beautiful ideas. Just out of curiosity, the clients you were seeing before that insight, how long on average would someone see you for? Because I know a lot of therapy, some people will say, oh, I was with them for 10 years and I was with people can do that for years. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I'm interested in your story. Did you see people for less time? Like how long would you see someone before that? And how long did you tend to see them for afterwards when you taught differently? Most of the people that I saw, I saw for years, but I was only a therapist for like six years at this time. So I didn't have the experience of having people for that long of time, but I was going to get out of the business because I thought quite frankly, that I wasn't happy. My colleagues were unhappy and my clients were not getting happy. They'd get better. I mean, they'd be able to function a little better in their life, but just listening to them and loving them was a lot, but they weren't really happy human beings. So it was a totally different job. And now, I mean, I still have people that see me for years, but they come back and forth, you know, like different times in their life, things come up and then they come in and talk to me. Like a a woman just had a a miscarriage and I hadn't seen her in, I don't know, eight, 10 months. So she set up one one appointment. She just sent me a text. Oh, everything's great. I can feel the baby moving because she'd had a miscarriage and then she got pregnant again. And she was fearful that the pregnancy was not going to make it. And she said, everything's going great. I'm doing great. I'll call you again if I need you. I said, oh, great. Take care. So what people do is they kind of come and go in their life. If they get off a little bit, they know to come back and listen, and then they get their bearings back again. And, you know, everybody's different. Sometimes people just like to come because they like to go deeper and they like to see more. And and other people just have a harder time seeing that they're thinking. So um, I try not to have expectations for people to be there a short time or a long time. But most people, I would say, get better way faster. Like it would take years to get a little bit better. I think people get better faster, but they also see the possibilities of living in higher and higher states of mind. So I think, you know, if you looked at the criteria for normal therapy, would their symptoms be gone? That kind of thing. People get better really fast. What takes a a bit longer for many people is 
really, I know for me, I've been doing this 40 years and I'm still learning. So I don't expect that my clients would be any different than me. So for whatever, if people want to come and talk and learn more, I'm happy to help them. But they don't need me anymore. The kind of work I did before, I would have a stack of notes to call people in crisis at the end of my day that would take me several hours to get through just to help them through their the trauma of the day. I was like their lifeline. I was the person they were looking to help keep them together. And this understanding really helped them the power to shift into these women where they could take control of their own life and make their own choices and decide how they wanted to live by listening to that wisdom that you were talking about, that wisdom that comes with the gift of life. And for them to find that and find their strength on the inside, gosh, there's nothing better than that. I just got an email yesterday from a woman that's had agoraphobia for 25 years. And she said, I want you to know that I went out and did a four-hour walk in the woods by myself the first time in 25 years. I mean, that's what empowerment to me is. We find out that our strength is on the inside, that our lovability is on the inside, that love is on the inside. And when you find that, then how you look at life and literally what comes into your life changes. I can really relate to that, the awestruck part of the work. Because, I mean, especially in the first few years of doing this as a job, I would get critically chronically self-conscious like once you and have an existential crisis and think oh god everybody's got like a softer more profound voice and everybody's so insightful and I should go do something else which is really you know my ego but I would fall apart a bit and then when I stopped thinking about me and started to look at the change in others you know I was like so moved it's what gets me out of bed in the morning when you see somebody take back their freedom mm-hmm. of mind. I mean, it's just quite extraordinary. So you have this insight. You're basically petaling all over the place. Your love is happening. You're feeling you're changing. People are feeling hopeful. They're taking their lives back. What's happening with your dating life? Did you suddenly see dating differently? Did you, because how soon after that did you meet your husband? How did that all play out? I met my husband about five years later, five, almost six years later. And I think that I had to kind of grow up again because I had kind of matured in my dating life with all this bad thinking, you know, where I thought I wasn't lovable. And I thought that the expectations for a relationship were based on what I made up from watching movies and things like that. And so literally I kind of had several Men that I dated for, oh, I don't know, four or five months a year during that time that I loved dearly, but each one of them taught me something differently. Like, oh, this person's teaching me about accepting romance. This person is teaching me about the power of being quiet and doing nothing and slowing down. This person is teaching me how I'm not going to tolerate living in a reality that's very negative. Each one was like, oh, now I'm learning this. Now I'm learning that. So the difference was if that had happened before, I would have been like, oh, another rejection. Oh, this wasn't working again. Look what's wrong with me. But it was like, oh, because I knew you got to understand, like I'm 30 years old, 31 years old. I had a lot of men that I dated, but that didn't necessarily live close to me. So they were kind of people that I was having these long distance relationships with that weren't really committed, but we would see each other every once in a while. We liked each other. And it's like slowly one by one, they all dropped away. It's really funny. It's like, oh, another one's gone. Oh, another one's gone. It's like all the people that lived at that level of consciousness just dropped away. And then new people came in. And from those new people, I, I just learned a lot about myself and how to stay in a good feeling and not let my happiness be contingent on if somebody else wanted to be in a relationship with me or not. Because I realized that if they didn't want to be in a relationship with me, they were not right for me. Like I didn't get that before. I thought that if I loved them, that somehow they were right for me. And I didn't know that my mind could trick me into loving anybody, right? Really? I mean, you can love anybody. And, and I did frequently. 
living in mental well-being for me, learning that was more important than anything. So I went for about, oh, maybe a year without dating anybody. It's like all of a sudden I realized I had to be happy in myself. I saw that I was really dependent in my mind on having some man love me to be okay. So that year was really me learning how to quiet down and just be happy in myself. And as I did that, then um, I decided to move to Hawaii. And when I moved to Hawaii, I was actually sick of dating. I thought, you know what? My life is so perfect now. How can it get any better? And if I meet somebody, great. But if I don't, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter anymore. And I just didn't even care if I went out on a date. It was kind of boring by that time. It's like, you know, it's like been there, done that so many times. And so what happened was that I joined this health club to work out uh, and exercise. And the first person I met there turned out to be my husband, but he was, I called him an old derelict. He was like 10 years older than me. And he had a a big gray scraggly beard and he had holes in his t-shirt. And I was like, oh, geez. So he just wasn't my type at all. But I did sign up to join the gym that day. And then later on, about a month later, I met him at a party and his best friend introduced us. And I remember thinking like his eyes are so, the feeling in his eyes are so beautiful, but I still wasn't interested. It wasn't my type. I had thoughts about what my type was, right? And so he didn't match that at all, but I just thought, oh, he's this great Hawaiian man and he's just got such a great feeling. And, you know, I was thinking about referrals, to be honest with you. I was like, oh, he worked with the union and he could make referrals of his people to me. So long story short, he asked me out, but I didn't even know it was a date. He said, you want to go to this racquetball tournament? I said, yeah, sure. Because we were just hanging out and every Thursday night, there'd be kind of a group that would get together and just chit chat and talk story. They call it here in Hawaii and eat poopoos, which are like appetizers. So he asked me out on this date and I didn't know it was a date. So I said, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll go with you. And he said, I'll come pick you up. I said, no, I can drive over. He goes, I'll pick you up. I said, no, I can drive. And he said, no, I'll come pick you up. I said, well, suit yourself. You want to come pick me up? Come pick me up. So he comes and picks me up and he won the state championship for racquetball. I said, oh, he's athletic. That's good. Okay. Then he sat down and he meet, there was a, a board game called Miss Pac-Man. And he sat down and, and beat the high score on the game. It's like, oh, he can quiet his mind. That's good. Okay. We went to Magic Island to watch the sunset, which is in Ala Moana Park. And I was like, oh, this is beautiful. So beautiful. I just, I mean, I just love Hawaii. I was just still in Gaga land about living in Hawaii. And uh, he leaned over and kissed me. And I was like, oh, oh, this is a date. Oh, like I had no clue. I think it was the first time in my life I didn't know I was on a date. And that was the end of my dating. I never haven't dated another man since that time. And it was in 1985. So what does that make it? 36 years. And was the kiss as nice as his eyes? Yes, it was. He's a very good kisser. You've been together a long time and you talk about him with so much affection. What have you learned from being married? Well... I learned to mind my own business. One of the things I realized when we got married was I started thinking that his business was my business and I didn't realize it. So I've learned to mind my own business for the most part. And I learned that everybody has different thoughts about what the perfect relationship is. And just because mine are mine doesn't mean that they're accurate or that they're necessarily good for the two of us. And that was hard for me because I thought my thoughts about what, you know, I'm still back to those movies that I grew up with. I had these thoughts about what a perfect relationship was going to be. And um, I had to realize that the perfection in our relationship wasn't that it met my expectations or his, but that we could come together on a mutually shared experience that was positive for both of us. Do you feel like you have relationship hacks and that sounds super cheap but it's not like what do you navigate with to make it so that you can live in love and contentment or connection like what do you use to navigate what are your hacks well actually my husband is uh, my barometer 
because he does not tolerate busy-mindedness. It's one of the beautiful things about the culture in Hawaii is that it's not an intellectually based one. It's really based on living in mental well-being. And so for him, when my mind gets busy and I'm asking too many questions and going too fast, he will bristle. That's my cue. Like, oh, I got to quiet down going too fast again. So I get my cues from him and I can see how to make adjustments. So I can see how to adjust and do change what I'm doing so that I'm back in a good feeling. Cause when I'm in a really good feeling, there's no problems. And so when you say um, your business is keeping up his business, I call it no strings attached. Mm. I realized way later than you did, like probably year 15 in <laughs> that I thought about Aaron as somehow mine and everything he did was a reflection on me and did I like what he was doing and did I agree with it and if he did good I felt like I was something to do with it you know and it was just like there was strings attached in my mind that took away all that freshness we had when the first few months we weren't really thinking about ourselves as a couple and as soon as these little white sort of dental floss threads started to connect in my head to him belonging to me and it sounds terrible or the coupleness, couple thinking. And I thought of him, I say, describe it like my boyfriend thinking. I didn't ever really just see him as an independent person that's allowed to think and feel whatever he likes. Mm-hmm. And it took away all the freshness of just experiencing him as a separate being that I got to be with. Mm-hmm. But I think I took a lot longer than you, Chris, to figure that out. And be free in my mind that it's a choice I get to show up and be with him every day. So it's a cho- it feels like a choice rather than, oh, we're in a, like all that dialogue of being in a marriage, quit. If we had a fight or oh, we're in a marriage and it means this and the implications of that and then I'm stuck in a marriage. I literally started to get this like low sort of TV commercial voice thinking. The first fight we had after we got married, before it was just like, oh, we had a fight. No, but you know, you have a fight with your boyfriend. We got married. The first fight we had, it was like, oh my God, this is serious. We're in a marriage. It's oh my, it just all went to this deep voice. And I'm like, well, that's really unfun. Yeah, he doesn't do well with me parenting him. And it changes the power dynamic. You know, it's like when you're just seeing each other as you did when you dated, you're just two people, right? It's like you're just learning about each other. You're just listening to each other. Once you start thinking, you know, the person and then your own personal thoughts get in there, then you think they should be the way you want them to be. But that's just your thinking, you know? And the other thing that I learned kind of early on was that everybody has times when you have like arguments and you get upset. And and the first time it happened to me, I thought, I don't need to put up with this shit. And then I went, "Oh, Oh, wait a minute. Now you're a marriage counselor. And what are you going to do about this? Like you're teaching three principles and you're going to tell people that your relationship is over. Like you couldn't handle it. You couldn't make it work. How, how can you possibly give couples hope if you do that? I was like, damn, I'm stuck here. I can't even leave now that I'm here. So then it kind of took the option of divorce off the table for me. So I know that frequently those thoughts have come up in my head, you know, like, ah, I don't want to put up with this. You know, and I know it as for my husband too. I mean, I drive him crazy sometimes, but they're fleeting thoughts. You know, they're not things that we would act upon. And so having that be the, for us anyway, having that be the the deal that we wanted to live in a good feeling with each other and that we would always come back to that is the thing that's probably made our relationship so wonderful over the years is that we really value that about the other person. And we know to listen. So if one of us has a feeling about something, we listen for that. We don't get caught up in the details as much. And we make decisions based on how does that feel. I've heard you say that before, that you navigate towards a good feeling and that's more interesting than being right. Was it a conversation you ever had explicitly or was it just an intuitive navigation that you figured out together? Oh, no. When we were dating, we would talk about how we don't like to argue. And, you know, Sam came in and he um, was friends with Sid. And so he would come and listen to Sid. And he, a lot of things that he learned growing up, he woke up to. So he got a deeper feeling from, and he saw it at a deeper level. 
So it was just common sense to him. And it's still common sense to him. I still can get caught up in my thinking, doing too much, going too fast. And he'll like, just give me a look. And I know like, oh, whoops, going too fast again. You know, it's kind of like you learn signals of, at least for me, I learn signals for the other person. And I also know that there are thoughts that he has that I can push, you know, like I can push his buttons. I don't do it intentionally, but sometimes I do it. And then I know I'm going too fast, right? Like I don't expect him to be free of insecurities. I don't expect him to be any certain way. He is who he is and he does what he does. And I know eventually he'll get to where he needs to go, but he's really good at listening. We try to listen. We listen for a feeling more than to be right or to, we almost never argue. We, we never argue actually. Sometimes he gets mad at me. I get mad at him, but we don't really argue. It's like a five, five second interval. Doesn't end up on Fox news. No, it doesn't. In fact, most people probably wouldn't even see it as a fight. Yeah, I feel so less bothered if Aaron and I get snarky with each other. It used to be something to worry about, and now it's just being snarky. Sometimes we're just like little bitches to each other for a couple hours, and then it's over. It's such a relief to not then go into analysis and worry and go, oh, my God, oh, God, good point. What does that mean? That's pointing to something. There's probably an underlying thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to um, mention at this point, you wrote a book. And co-authored a book with Laurie, sorry, what was Laurie's second name? With Laurie? Carpinos. Carpinos, thank you. And it's called The Secret of Love. Can you tell me a little bit about that book and about what made you want to write it? Well, Sid made a little tape called Thought and Marriage, and um, it really affected both of us, our marriage and family therapists. So we thought it would be great to have a, a relationship book that really talked about Sid's insights and talked about how that plays out in relationships that people can come together no matter what. So we took a lot of his quotes and then we had stories that kind of reflect what he was talking about. And then a little bit of a, a discussion afterwards, but it's really pointing people to the possibilities that, you know, they can change whatever the problem is they're having in their relationship, that the secret to finding love is what's missing in the world, right? Because everybody's looking for love in all the wrong places outside of themselves. The mystery is understanding the role thought plays and how we get tricked by that. And the magic is finding that feeling and then seeing how relationships change and evolve as a result of that. And did it feel really good to write? I think it, it, it felt really good to be able to put something out there that's helpful to people. And unfortunately, afterwards, I'm quite critical. And so afterwards, I'm thinking like I'd do it differently again. It's really made a difference with a lot of people. It also hasn't gone out in the way that I'd like it to. So I, I'm thinking that we intellectualized it too much. I mean, the next book will be different. Mm. So obviously, you're a marriage and family therapist. What have you learned from working with couples? You know, I used to do, uh, before I learned the principles, I would like have them come in and talk about what, was, what their problems were and what they didn't like about each other and how to fight fairly and all that kind of stuff. And usually they ended up getting divorced. So it was like, oh, it's too bad that people don't come in sooner because by the time they come in, they're such a mess. We can't help them. You know, really looking to help people to quiet down and slow down is really pretty simple. Then their relationship comes together without effort. And just knowing how to get out of that their expectations for each other, they're thinking about each other, they're thinking about themselves and how that sabotages their interactions, I think is helping them to see that how to live and love each, each of them. And when they do that, they don't have a marriage problem. I feel like that little thing you just said right there, everything's in that. Yeah. In fact, if you're listening, rewind and hear it again, because it was really it's very profound and has a practical element, but points to something really deep. Really like the way you put that. So Chris, I got another couple of questions for you. What would you tell your single self? I would tell my single self that you need to slow down and stop searching. Let it come to you. Let the relationship, if there's one out there, let it come to you. Stop looking, relax, and get your shit together. What does get your shit together mean? Oh, I was just so insecure. You know, I was just living in this busy mind. It would be impossible for somebody to connect with me. My mind was going so fast. 
unless it was a dramatic kind of experience, the long-term ability to connect with people was just not there because my mind was, I was going so fast. It was so insecure. So I'd say, calm down, stop thinking there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. Just a regular young woman and you'll find the right person and relax and enjoy your life. And would your advice for your 16-year-old self, you know, bigger picture for your life to come, would you tell her anything different? Oh, I would tell her there's nothing wrong with you. Your mind has made up lots of stories and there's nothing wrong with you. There's never been anything wrong with you. You just tricked yourself in interpreting what other people said and did. Be yourself. I'd love to do that just to not be so insecure. I mean, I'd love to be a, a young girl now. They're, they're a lot different when I was their age. The goal for very few of them in high school is to get married. And I would say the goal of 80% of the women in my class were, was to get married, maybe 70. And it was like, if it wasn't primary, it was secondary for probably everybody. And, you know, I would just say, relax, enjoy your life. Let yourself do what you're good at and stop judging yourself. Stop thinking that you should be better. Just be okay with whatever mistakes you make and learn, change, grow, be happy. Be happy. That's what I'd say. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been such a delight. I really, um, really got a lot out of talking to you. Thank you so, so, so. Oh, thank you for having me, Lila. I just podcast and I hope that it goes really well. Thank you so much. Thanks for asking me to come. I, I had a great time. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you have any questions or stories you'd like to share with us, you can contact us at info at relationship-ready.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you did, go ahead and hit the subscribe button to keep up to date with the most recent episodes.